1: So welcome to the history of the heavyweight championship of the world, a podcast from Yahoo with me, Steve Bunce. Watch now, down he goes for the count of ten. In this series, I will take a look at one year in the sports history. I will cover all the heavyweight championship fights, the stories, characters, outrageous acts, fairy tales, knockouts, controversies, inventions and one or two lies. Well, certainly the truth being stretched. In short, all the details that matter. I started in 1960 with men that changed the sport forever. This will so be no contest. This will be a total annihilation. Well, let, let him do with the talking. He does enough for both of us. I would like to announce my retirement from boxing. Oh, well, I've been up and down uh, a number of times. It's all here. Every fighter and fight that matters. Welcome to 1961. <laughs> 1961 started with Floyd Patterson as the world heavyweight champion. He had recaptured the title in June of 1960, the first fighter to ever do so. Floyd still needed to prove he was a worthy champion, a man deserving of the title. Many people wanted Rocky Marciano back. The Rock, however, was long gone. The third fight of Ingemar Johansson, a lovable and often lethal Swede, took place in Miami at the convention hall. The night before, the preacher, Billy Graham, had filled the hall with his words of salvation. Over 15,000 fans and curious spectators watched the third and final instalment of the Ingo v. Floyd trilogy. For the rematch in 1960, Pallison had trained in solitude, behind locked doors. He put an end to his private training days for the third fight by preparing in front of the public at the Deauville Hotel on Miami Beach. He was approachable, happy and smiling. He wandered about in the glitzy lobby in his silk pyjamas, posing for pictures and shaking hands with winter sun tourists. Ingo opted for the money retreat of Palm Beach, 75 miles from Miami, a place where the ludicrous met the stupidly rich, and it was often hard to tell the difference. Peter Wilson, the Daily Mirror's legendary boxing writer, went to Palm Beach on a dubious pilgrimage and summed it up perfectly. Palm Beach, where you really only count as a millionaire, if you've inherited your money from your father, whose father before him actually made the vulgar stuff. The bookies had no doubt about the fight. Floyd was a firm favourite, and Johansson was installed as wide as four to one against. Patterson was heavier than he'd been in the rematch, but Ingo was still close to 12 pounds heavier than the champion at 14 stone and 10 and a half pounds. Frank Sinatra was ringside. Sonny Liston was actually introduced to the crowd, a sign, perhaps, that the feared and avoided boxer was getting closer and closer to a world title fight. A fight he was long overdue. Liston had fought a few days earlier in Miami and had destroyed Howard King in three rounds. It was Liston's 25th consecutive win, a run that started in 1954. It was also his 20th knockout in that run. Liston, make no mistake was stalking Patterson. There was also a stunning trinity of former heavyweight champions at ringside. Max Schmeling, Joe Louis, and Rocky Marciano were all introduced. The third fight was an event, make no mistake. In round one, it happened again. Ingo landed his bingo and Patterson was over, flat on his back. At ringside, Wilson was shocked. It did not seem to me to have been a particularly powerful punch, but then... Past fights have proved that Patterson doesn't have a particularly powerful chin. Ouch, that hurt. The first round continued and Patterson was dropped again. He got up, shook his head and then connected with a left hook and down went Johansson. That is how you start a heavyweight title fight. In round two, they were both stunned. Here's Peter Wilson again. Patterson was like a deaf man trying to dance but unable to hear the music. The fight continued. In round six, it was over. Ingo went down and out, face first, a victim, he claimed, of a rabbit punch behind the ear. He was out. The trilogy was over. At ringside, George Whiting of the London Evening Standard was yet another unconvinced witness. He watched the end and wrote that night, Floyd Patterson, a dark, perspiring nemesis of savage heart, implacable intent, but frequent of faltering technique. Wow, those guys could write. And George, a scribe of the oldest of old schools, listened to the men surrounding Patterson, listened to their plans and their assessment of the carnage, and, I imagine, shaking his head, wrote his own wonderful assessment of Patterson and his team. They are living in the paradise of fools. And that, my friends, might just be the greatest description ever of the heavyweight championship of the world. The paradise of fools. Now, some of the American boxing writers were truly savage. Jimmy Cannon, a big hitter behind the typewriter, did not mince his words when the third fight was finished. At first, I thought he would be the first heavyweight champion with a cauliflower towel, he said about Patterson. Patterson had been dropped a total of nine times in the three-fight series with Johansson. It's a sequence of knockdowns that remains untouchable in heavyweight history. No heavyweight in a consecutive three-fight series of world title fights has been on the canvas more times, and no heavyweight will ever be in the future. Yep, Floyd certainly had his doubters. However, he remained a thoroughly decent man. A few raw facts from the fight. Floyd was paid $832,000. Ingo pocketed $650,000. And the total gate, television, tickets and radio was a very impressive $2,044,000. That's good business. (laughs) After the fight, Cannon then rated Patterson the 10th best of 11 heavyweight champions since Max Schmeling in 1930. Primo Carnero was rated above Floyd by Cannon. That's harsh. Primo was and remains a freak champion, a human mountain of abused flesh and muscle, a circus strongman. Carnera was carefully and disgracefully guided to the world title in 1933. His reign was a farce, his life a tragedy. To be ranked below Carnera in a list of heavyweight champions by somebody with as much influence as Jimmy Cannon was a truly awful insult. Another defence was planned and a list of potential opponents announced. Well, three names were put forward. Eddie Machin, Cleveland Big Cat Williams and Zora Foley. They were all avoided and they had all lost to Sonny Liston in 1960. Patterson, at that time, did have some say in the selection. He should have met Liston right then or any of the other three. He missed an opportunity when he ignored his four leading contenders. Unfortunately, Patterson and his people then took on a man that would not stop the critics. In Toronto, in December, Patterson defended his world heavyweight title against Tom McNeely. Now, McNeely was unbeaten in 23 fights at the time and dubbed the long shot from Boston when he appeared on the front cover of Sports Illustrated. There was some confusion about just exactly where Big Tom had found and slaughtered the 23 men on his record. George Whiting had a theory how it was achieved by the careful selection of harmless non-entities to soak up the steamroller punishment. If I wrote that now, about any protected heavyweight boxer, I would be banned. I'm not joking. It was a bizarre fight. He was a long shot, that's for sure. But the bookies installed Patterson as a 10-to-1 favourite, which is not that much. There have been world heavyweight title fights in the last 10 years where the champion has been at over 1 to 60 to win. That is, you put 60 quid down, or $60, and you win just one back. That's crazy. It was a mess of a fight. McNeely was officially knocked down eight times. Patterson seemed to help him up a couple of times. Perhaps McNeely should have the last word on the knockdown total. The stories about the fight said I went down nine or ten times. The writers were being kind to me. I had the film and it was more like 12 or 13. The fight, which was called the Misconceived Massacre Match by George Whiting, was stopped in round four. Whiting was as eloquent as ever from ringside that night. You could call it a fight if you like, but you would be much nearer the blood-splattered truth if you came up with a description of a Misconceived Massacre. At the fight's messy and bloody end, McNeely's wife Nancy climbed into the ring canvas. She'd been a beauty queen and much had been made in the build-up of her former glories. Whiting, who never missed an incident or detail anywhere near a ring on fight night, captured the moment. Nancy was helped up to kiss away her husband's obvious distress. When they broke their brief clinch, there was blood on her face. If the name McNeely rings a bell, it's probably because in 1995 McNeely's son Peter was selected to make half a million dollars to fight the disgraced and exiled Mike Tyson, who was fresh from prison. It was Tyson's return to the ring and the carnival fight was in Las Vegas that summer. Where else? It was a spectacular event. McNeely promised to wrap Tyson in a cocoon of horror when the first bell sounded. Tyson, on hearing that, laughed. Anyway, it never happened and it was stopped after just 89 seconds. Tyson was the winner. Sonny Liston fought on the same night, but not at the same venue as McNeely against Patterson. His latest fight lasted less than a round. He was getting closer and closer to Patterson, but there were some impressive people trying to stop their inevitable fight from ever taking place. In early January of 1962, the President of the United States, John F. Kennedy, met with Patterson at the White House. He suggested Patterson avoid Liston because of Liston's links to organised crime. The President's brother, Bobby, the Attorney General, said the same thing. Incidentally, JFK had watched the McNeely fight on a special feed at the White House. Liston had certainly made some formidable enemies. And then, never far away, was Cassius Clay. Still a kid, but a brilliant one. Clay had eight fights in 1961. One was on his 19th birthday, a three-round win against Big Tony Asperti. Clay was paid $545. Asperti got a hiding. In 1967, Big Tony, who had links with organised crime, there's a shock, shot dead Miami mafiosi Tommy the Enforcer Altamuri. It's too wild to invent. Clay then knocked out Jim Robinson in just 94 seconds. Robinson was a late replacement and once claimed he had weighed just 158 pounds on the night of the Clay fight. That's middleweight, not heavyweight, by the way. Robinson is the only one of Muhammad Ali's opponents that has never been traced. He vanished, boom, and people did try to find him in the 70s. Clay had taken to calling Floyd Patterson Fraud Patterson. At the end of his fights, he would ask about Fraud Patterson. After beating the Hawaiian strongman Duke Sabadong in Las Vegas in June, an even louder clay emerged. And there is a reason. Before the fight, he had been on a local radio show with a wrestler called Gorgeous George. He listened in awe, stunned at the transformation once Gorgeous started talking. Clay realised that the more he talked, the more tickets he would sell. Duke Sabadong took Clay the full 10 rounds. Duke was 225 pounds, big compared to other hand-picked Clay opponents. Most weighed about 195 pounds. It was perfect matchmaking. Clay's next fight... Still just his eighth fight was against Alonzo Johnson, a real test, a forgotten test in his history. It was also televised nationally thanks to a deal with Madison Square Garden. It took place in Louisville, his hometown. Johnson had lost in the previous 18 months to world-class fighters Zora Foley, Eddie Machin, and Willie Pastrano. Good names on the record and Alonzo was a man of 26, tough and unimpressed with clay. The kid can talk all he likes. He just ain't got it. He didn't hurt me once, claimed Johnson. After Johnson, there was another tough, seasoned, proven and perfect opponent in Alex Miteff. It took place in Louisville once again. Mitiff was 22 pounds heavier, but ideal. Mitiff had lost on points to Henry Cooper, Machin, and dropped a split decision to George Chevallo. That is a quality trio of contenders. And all three of the fights had taken place in the previous 18 months. The truly fearsome and avoided Cleveland Williams had stopped Miteff in five. It took Clay six rounds, and that's still impressive. Clay received $5,645 for the fight. Clay had one more fight in 1961, stopping concentration camp survivor Willie Besman off in the seventh round. Willie had been stopped previously by Sonny Liston, and at the end of the fight, he had some sobering advice for the young Clay and his handlers. He's not the unbeatable fighter he thinks he is. I've been hit much harder. Sonny Liston is a much more brutal puncher. Liston is an animal and Clay better keep away from him. Mm. Liston had destroyed Besman off and the fight was called off at the end of round six. Clay called Brave Willie, the unrated duck. He also promised to end the fight in round seven and he did. It was a gorgeous George trick. It would soon be a regular part of Clay's act. Clay finished the year 10 and 0 in fights. He was still a boxing baby of 19. But a lot of people were talking about him and not everything they said was complimentary. However, the real heavyweight story in 1961 took place one afternoon in Angelo Dundee's gym, the Fifth Street Gym in Miami, in February. On that day, Ingemar Johansson and his team, including old-school fight publicist Harold Conrad, were in Miami promoting the third fight with Patterson. Johansson wanted to spar and Clay begged Dundee to let him get in the ring. Conrad, a witness, watched from the ring apron. Johansson had a great right hand but two left feet and Cassius started dancing and popping him. Johansson was furious. He started chasing Cassius around the ring, throwing right hands and missed by 20 feet. The sparring was called off after two rounds. Clay loved it. Johansson steamed out of the gym. It was a clear sign of the times. Gil Rogan, a staff writer at Sports Illustrated, was also witness to the magical sparring session. Here was a man, a boy really, who'd had four professional fights and he made a monkey out of Johansson. I'd never seen anything like it before. It's okay, Gil. That's because there had never been anybody like him before. Clay was coming for all of them. And in 1962, he would step up his chase. Watch now. Down he goes for the count of ten.
0: That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN.
1: The 60s was a golden decade for sports writing, and here are some of the men that made it special, the writing geniuses at ringside for some of the greatest fights ever. The journalists of the 1960s on the Daily Boxing Beat had to live and breathe these fights. It was the only way they could convey the feelings, the emotions to an audience largely kept in the dark until they opened the pages of the paper and found the glorious words. Take George Whiting of the London Evening Standard. Ringside for the third and final Ingemar Johansson and Floyd Patterson heavyweight title fight. The score is 1-1 in fights so far. Both ended quick with a lot of knockdowns. It was an odd fight and there were slow moments and that meant Whiting could enjoy himself. Johansson plodded and plunged, backed off and got his feet mixed up. Quite obviously, these two top warriors were not at that stage better practitioners than lesser men. Not to put too fine a point on it, Patterson and Johansson looked like two plodders. Ouch, plodders is a severe reprimand at any level. This was the heavyweight championship of the world, and not the realm of plodders. George was not impressed, and he continued. Indeed, after a clumsy, bumbling fifth round, we were almost prepared to yawn, and talk instead about the weather. However, it was a nasty finish. Here's Whiting on the end of Johansson's world championship career. The Swede's right eye is oozing blood into the smoke-laden night air. The left eye is swelling and his feet seem to be carried on ungainly legs. At times it looks as though the Gothenburg giant has but partial control over his 14 stone and 10 and a half pounds of sun bronze flesh and muscle. That is a description of a man with nowhere to run or hide. Written by a man who has been close witness to the end of too many fighters ambitions. Whiting knew the men he wrote about. He cared for their wins and their losses. As Sweet George was leaving the Miami Convention Centre on that March night, he spotted something. The wise old hack in him was always looking for a tidy payoff. What he saw gave him his last words on that chaotic night and fight. An estimated crowd of 15,000 wandered out into the midnight rain. Over the marble portals and the rainbow fountains of this splendid hall, they could read a sculptured legend which read, dedicated to peace, achievement and progress. Floyd Patterson and Ingemar Johansson were, I thought, a little short of all three. The night was over for George and the fans. A.J. Liebling, the author of The Sweet Science, was also down in Miami and called on Patterson the day before the fight. It seems Liebling was like print royalty and could arrive when he wanted. Patterson had been sleeping. Liebling asked for him to get up. Patterson did and came downstairs. Here's Liebling on the champ's arrival. He was wearing a silk oriental dressing robe, orange and black, like a butterfly wing. And under it, his back made a blocky rectangle. No longer an inverted triangle as in his Helsinki days. There were ropes of muscle at the base of his throat. He was a full-scale heavyweight now. He is a dark man, about the colour of semi-sweet chocolate, and has a long, uptilted nose and little sleepy eyes, which give him the look of having a small joke with himself. They chatted. Liebling got his interview. That night, as Patterson fretted, Liebling saw Frank Sinatra at the supper club in the Hotel Fontainebleau on Miami Beach, it's always details—some tiny—with the press in the '60s. And here's Liebling on Ingo's ring entrance that night in Miami. The organist played a rollicking version of the Swedish anthem. Johansson, in a white terry cloth robe, followed in the wake of his attendants, like a sacrificial ox on the way up the Acropolis. That is perfect. Liebling, by the way, was writing in the New Yorker. A little later in the year, Whiting was back ringside for Patterson's next defence, this time in Canada against Tom McNeely. This was the type of mismatch boxing writers love. It provides a chance to have some fun. Big Tom had no chance, but Whiting had a fabulous line on the no-hoper and the prospect of an upset. If he succeeds, we can pocket our illusions. Toss away the few remaining pages of the textbooks and admit once and for all that boxing skill is no longer needed to raise a man to the pinnacle of what was once a sport of grace and dignity. We can pocket our illusions. That is wonderful. It was savage to witness. McNeely was repeatedly dropped before the merciful ending. Whiting took no pleasure in being right. Up, down, up, down. We almost lost count of the disasters going on there inside those ominous black ropes. But the final dismantling came when the bewitched McNeely stumbled like a wounded ox under a power shot right-hander in Patterson's corner. I love ominous black ropes. That's detail. When that fight was finished and Whiting was backstage in the hallway between contrasting dressing rooms, he was on the prowl. A Fleet Street Institution looking for an extra twist or two. He talked to former World Heavyweight Champion Jersey Joe Walcott, who was the referee for the massacre. I asked Referee Walcott if he was aware that on one occasion it had seemed like Patterson had tried to help his adversary to his feet after a knockdown. Yes, said the balding warrior from an earlier decade. We fight hard, but remember, we are human beings. Many times i felt sorry for an opponent and held off. Sometimes it caused me to lose a fight. All of which proves that Christian charity can sometimes creep into a boxing ring. It just happens that on this occasion, poor McNeely was well past charity. He needed another pair of arms. That's the way to end a fight report. If you're enjoying this tour through the best of boxing history, you can find more transcripts, archive videos, historical images in the boxing section of the Yahoo UK sports site. That's uk.sports.yahoo.com slash boxing. The history of the heavyweight championship is written and recorded by me, Steve Bunce, produced by Yahoo UK with editing and sound design by Lolita Laguna.